Good morning, Charlotte. We are here in the wake of the painless launch. <laughs> the painless, painless launch of uh, this podcast, which I'm immensely gratified by. It's Friday. First one came out on Wednesday and literally I haven't had to do a stroke of extra work. Well, the tarot cards told us that Wednesday was the day and they don't lie. So it's all been enormously pleasing to me and uh, thank you for facilitating such a a stress-absent experience. Well, thank you for doing it with me because I have had a grand time with all the recording and talking to people and thinking about who else I want to talk to. It's been really fun and listening back to our conversations gives me quite a kick. I'm someone who never gets tired of laughing at herself. (laughs) And who (laughs) has a lot of tolerance for the same joke heard 3,000 times. So it is of no burden to me to listen to our conversations over and over and over and over. And whenever we laugh, I laugh and it makes me happy. So, and I hope, I hope we can earn the allegiance and interest of many new listeners. (laughs) But now I need to hear about what you've been reading because we haven't talked about it. We've been talking about podcasts only. Yeah, it's true. Um, God, I've been reading so much lately. Like, I've just had one of those... This past weekend was one of those weekends when... Okay, I went out on Friday, briefly. But I went about out a bit late, and I was just kind of out of the rhythm of the evening. And I went out, and I danced a bit, and then I ended up just... I don't know if you ever do this, but it's a fun thing to be in a dancing environment and then just to leave. I've left so many environments. I can't even delineate all the environments I've left throughout my life. Right, exactly. Like, as soon as I've um, perceived an environment, I'm excited to leave. The, I'm not used to... I've never been a big leaver, actually, like that. I'm more of a stayer in and regretting not having left earlier. But anyway, so this is kind of new for me. I went just to, like, a bar around the corner from my house and sat and read until, like, 2 o'clock in the morning. And then... I just read all weekend long and it was mostly novels. And so I kind of want to, I'm going to explain briefly that there's one book that I'm not going to talk about, but which is really special, which is Anna Enright's book, um, novel, The Wren, The Wren. Have you come across this one? No. Anna Enright, she won the Booker Prize in 2007 for The Gathering. I've got to recommend The Wren, The Wren as an, a novel about the generational experiences of an extremely um, talented and irresponsible Irish poet. And this patriarch, whose name is Phil McDara in the book. Poetically, he's got shades of Heaney. There's definitely a bit of Ted Hughes in there. But the book is mostly about like what it's like to be the granddaughter of someone like that and to have been raised by his daughter. I don't want to interrupt your momentum in any way but I have to say that I think your pick is uncanny because we don't ever talk about our books I think that we're going to choose before we just show up and do it Uh and my pick is Edna O'Brien's A Pagan Place and Edna O'Brien is Irish and writing all about Ireland in the mid-century 1950s I guess maybe toward the 60s but yeah I think it's even the 40s can that be right yeah so it's just one of our many coincidences Edna O'Brien I've not read Edna O'Brien really yeah yeah you should absolutely yes and she's super prolific she's written so many books amazing amazing I mean Anna Enright has written a, a lot of books as well um she's very reliable I think you know her novels are gonna 
show you an oblique angle on your own <laughs> childhood frequently is my experience of reading her books but what is really lovely about the book is how central the grandfather's poetry is to the lives of like all the people in the book whether or not they hate his guts or whether or not he's treated them well the poetry is just, the poems are just the poems and uh, you know because a lot of them are like translations from old irish poetry and i mean the deep history of irish literature i mean it has a obviously like deep deep significance in ireland but to the literature of europe more generally there's this quite special role that the ancient or like very old Irish culture plays. Anyway, this is all to say <laughs> that Enright's version of her character's poems and their relationship to the deep past, including the deep imaginary past of the women characters in the book, is just a very, very fine and impressive thing. Okay, so the book I'm actually going to talk about today is by an historian named Chad L. Williams, and it's called The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. Very long, very readable, and it's an account, in short, of Du Bois's decision to publish a very famous essay at the start of World War One, which essentially called on African Americans to quote close ranks unquote and join in the American project of defeating fascism abroad as part of the Allied cause. He was arguing about fascism and whether or not fascism will be allowed to take over the world. What happened, of course, is that many, many, many black soldiers went to Europe to fight for the US and were treated like absolute shit by white American troops who couldn't abide to fight alongside them. There was a couple of black regiments um, in particular in France sabotaged by their white commanders and if you think about like the brutality and horror of World War One's battlefields, I don't know, I just, I feel like there's a, there's almost a reason beyond the sheer horror and uh like stupidity of what those commanders were doing um that i feel like i wouldn't have been able to cope with if i'd been taught about it in secondary school and now to think in retrospect i have this concept of what my emotional relationship is to those places and those bodies and what it all means and i just think like I'm just rethinking a lot of things, I suppose, about what I internally used as barometers for the absolute, you know, like the absolute worst, the absolute impossible, the absolute like non thing we will not do again. And I knew a lot about like black African people working in World War One, ironically, because of a famous white South African artist, William Kentridge, who is a little bit overrated, I think, but he did a show in New York a few years ago with, he has this like mixed live projection, dancing, opera show. And it's about the over 400,000 black people living in Africa who were essentially conscripted as porters in World War One, and that meant carrying everything. So I always remember it because Kentridge really you know, does a great job of simply depicting the fact of thousands of people being forced to dissemble a, like,
like battleship and carry it over land for hundreds and hundreds of miles and reassemble it on the other side. That's so crazy. I've never heard of right? considered such a thing in relationship to yeah the war and I knew that the only thing that I knew which Williams does an amazing job of showing how it related to what black intellectuals were perceiving about the war in the states of the time and also obviously what like the people that he was talking to when he was putting together the Pan-African Congress, right? He, there were these like extremely seasoned, deeply respected, you know, like one or two black military leaders who were, you know, a part of the same war on the same side and were now just like, they had nothing in common in so many respects and like so much information to give. Um, and so... <sighs> I'm not doing a good job of explaining why the book is good. I'm doing a good job of explaining my like woeful, woeful ignorance on <laughs> the connection between the two different regions of the history of like the first half of the 20th century that I've utterly failed to connect in my mind and to realise that people, I don't know, do you ever get the, <laughs> suddenly realise that people talk to each other as well as you thinking about them separately in the past? <laughs> like, oh... <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I reviewed a book about Margaret Mead and the Cold War. And, and there was this one passage where the author said something like, here are all the other people who were alive at the same time and like talking to each other. And I, you, I was reading it thinking, this feels made up. But he just, he gives us a lot of his personality, like what he was afraid about, what he was insecure about, what he was cross about, and especially conflict with other really nationally prominent black historians also involved with national pro-black organizations whom he was sort of competing with or fighting to rush to be the first person to give the definitive account of the you know the black american in the first world war um like that totemic contribution and I love stories of works that kind of get away from their authors. It's a, a kind of a weakness of mine. I don't know. I, I love it. And he, he really, really struggled. Inundated by personal materials from people who'd fought. Um, and then come back to America, you know, to experience the massive efflorescence of lynching in the 1920s. In that era, right, people were sending him their photographs and their letters and their evidence and, like, this is how it was treated and, like, this guy did it and this is what he's been saying. Because there was also... I I did not know that there was an official report made in the military of the, like, terrible conduct of the black soldiers abroad and how they should never again be allowed into the military and blah, blah, blah. Oh and it was all just, like, total... It was just, like, ass-covering lies. It's a whole thing because... The question of whether, like, the army should be integrated and, like, how and where and how that comes along with hospitals, as, you know, like, in the integration or not of hospitals is uh, another really fascinating, like, infrastructural part of Williams's story. And to be able, I think, to juggle that kind of historical theme with, who you know, much revered but human man, uh, it's just remarkable achievement. Really great pictures in the middle. <laughs> Always appreciate a lovely picture section. I don't think that I've 
like sat down and finished an historical book like that over a couple of days, something like that. Like I read it all day for two days. So I, um, I recently finished A Pagan Place by Edna O'Brien. And as I said earlier, she's an incredibly prolific Irish author who I haven't checked in the past two months or something. But until as of very recently was still alive in her, I think, late 90s. And she is someone who a lot of people have thought deserves a Nobel Prize. And she's living for so long that I personally feel like, can you just please give it to her? She is hanging on to get her Nobel. Um, her husband died in 1964. <sighs> yeah, her husband. Yeah. Oh, no, she, sorry. Maybe they were just married for only 10 years. I misinterpreted the way. He died to us in 1964. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I found out about this author because of Andrea Dworkin. Because I wrote this thing about Dworkin and the Joanna Fateman edited collection of Dworkin's work for a Descent a while ago. And Andrea Dworkin mentions Edna O'Brien, I believe, at least on two occasions and says she is like at the vanguard of women's experiences in literature. So I got curious and I looked her up and she's written 3000 books and I ordered a bunch of them. Do you read you read like this probably too, right? Do you will you try to read an entire no. <laughs> really? Oh. <laughs> My friend Jamie was saying that she does, and she thinks I'm the only other person she knows who does, where you become a completionist. It's easy if they've only written a few <laughs> books, you know? I do think it's a personality type, and I, res I respect that that's how things are <laughs> for, for you. <laughs> yeah, I just get a little fixated, I guess. But I enjoy it. I enjoy it. It feels rewarding in a very particular way. Um, so I have not gotten far in Edna. But I do love her quite passionately. And her novels are so fun. She's also written short story collections that I haven't gotten into yet. So A Pagan Place is a short book, right? It's small. But it's quite intense. It's just packed with so many details. And um, the pacing is sort of galloping because it's a little bit stream of consciousness. But like a child, because she's remembering being... The narrator, who doesn't have a name, is remembering being a girl. And she's sort of cramming in every single thing she remembers. You know, so she's remembering a scene with her mother in the kitchen or something. And all of these other things are coming into her mind about how the household worked and what her days were like. And I, as mentioned earlier, and as anyone who spent time around me knows, I'm something of a ninny. I love laughing. I laugh way too much. But... <laughs> I genuinely think the book is hilarious while it's being incredibly disturbing. And I tabbed a bunch of stuff to read. Um, so the girl and her parents have no name. And even though it's called a pagan place, clearly it's super Catholic. And there's a lot about the abuses and misbehavior of all of these adults who are in positions of authority not just parents, but doctors, priests. Oh, Georgie, you're so cute. Oh, my God. My little dog is tapping me on the shoulder because she wants to go out of work. Okay. So this, and this is a little bit Annie or no reminiscent, this scene. But the, mm -hmm. the, the, obviously the rendering could not be more different. Okay. I'll read it. 
One day your father had a pitchfork raised to your mother and said, I'll split the head of you open. And your mother said, and when you've done it, there will be a place for you. And you were sure that he would. And you and your sister Emma were onlookers. And your sister Emma kept putting twists of paper in her hair, both to curl it and pass the time. Later, when your mother felt your pulse, she said it was not normal. Nobody's pulse was normal that particular day. It's so... That's really It's good. so lively and hilarious and disorienting. And I just, the language her parents use and how distinct their voices are is beautiful. Let me see if I can give you another taste. I just, it's so wonderful. While you're finding another piece, I'll, there's a moment in The Wren, The Wren, when um, the poet's daughter, whose name is Carmel, she writes, this man was twice her size and he was her father. So the back of his hand was like the wet out of the way. <gasps> That's so good. Right? It's so good. Okay, is it all right if I read you? I'll read you like mm -hmm. two more things and I'll wrap it up. Okay, so Ambi is a man who, he's sort of like a hired hand who lives with them, just to give a little bit of context. So it's written in the second person, which normally I can't stand, but she does it so well. Hmm. You told him that the greatest line ever written was by Shakespeare, and it was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Ambie said, they get their money easy, the priests and the Shakespeare's. Ambie was a... <laughs> but uh, Ambie was a prime boy. Ambie got the doctor's maid into trouble and she put newspapers all over her bed after she drank Ergo. And even at that, the blood soaked right down through the mattress and she had to sleep on springs until it dried out. The doctor's wife locked her in the room for five days and starved her. The doctor and your mother sat on the kitchen table next to one another, and her legs were down, and his hand was somewhere under her apron in the unknown, tinkering. And she was not laughing, and she was not crying, but the sounds were like laughing and crying rolled into one, and she was flushed. You took the dog by its mane and ran off. It's so Holy shit. It's, it's like that. It's, just, it's a short book, but it's just like that all the time, relentlessly. And it's so funny. All the characters are so distinct. It's so terrifying, and there is this climactic moment of violence that basically reroutes the girl's life. It's on. It's honestly two sequential separate violences, basically, like assaults. Um, is it ergot? Like ergot poisoning? Yes, I think so, yeah. I don't right, know. right, right. Yeah, it's just a, it's a fungus that grows on grain. It's the thing that everyone's always blaming on people going insane in the past. Well, clearly she was, like, trying to self-abort. Yeah, yeah, it has a it has a gynecological use. Um, it's just a it's a really specific grain fungus, and it has so much has such a huge cultural like lore around it. I'll keep pronouncing the word lore like that because people think I'm saying lore. Oh, um, lore. lore, lore! I know. And I was trying to teach someone the difference between. Oh my god, the the words uh, yesterday I was teaching the difference between canonical, and and the canon in culture and lore okay i like that distinction yeah but then i was like not to be confused with canon law because mm. that's when the pope says you can't do something yeah very confusing anyway sorry carry on no but speaking of the language so i've learned so many new words reading her part of it obviously because she's using old irish slang and colloquialisms but a lot of it's also just that she's got a capacious vocabulary and I was thinking about how one time I tweeted something like, who are the authors you read to enhance your vocabulary? And I got 12,000 quote tweets of people saying, oh, like how disgusting, what a sad, pathetic way to read. <laughs> like, 
People are yes. so psycho. Like, yeah, God forbid. The disgusting shit. How, yeah, how God forbid. <laughs> you know, how, like, how miserable that there's no pleasure. Yeah, like, how dare I, God forbid, I go to a book to learn something. So I have, I pulled out words I learned from this book, and I want to see if you know them. And I okay. feel like Ooh, I feel like you will know them, and it'll be really embarrassing for me. No, and you'll probably and I probably won't. Hey, don't set me up. Just ask me. Okay, okay, okay. okay. come on. <laughs> I thought I remember what they mean, but I don't. I remember some of them. Okay, spondulix. Spondulix. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! The only word I could think that's related is a spondy, but that means like two long syllables. It is. It's money, but let me look up the exact definition. So I know that I'm right. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. No, I looked it up. But you're, wow. Money. I've never come across that ever. It's from... <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Spawn, do you want to use it? It's it's because of the shells that were used as currency. Ooh. They're called spondylus. Um, okay. That's so... No, that is like a classic bit of slang is like taking the historical... That's really funny. Okay. Okay. Locum. Locum is like a, um, isn't that like, it's like a substitute in place yes. like a doctor who's there temporarily. Yeah, I think they still have those. You're so, you're so smart. That's no, exactly we, it. No, we just still have them in English. I know. I think some of it well. is territorial. Okay. Pediculous. Pediculous. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't know it. It's, it's lysy. Oh. Isn't that gross and good? Really good. It's like pestle. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Um, gralatorial. Gralatorial. Does it mean like gravelly? <laughs> I'm looking it up to check. No, it's, oh God, this is such a good word. Of or pertaining to wading birds. Birds that wade. <gasps> Long-legged birds in water. Isn't that incredible? That's really good. I know. Okay, I have one last one that you might know. Flocculent. Flocculent. Yeah, yeah. If something's corpulent, that means it's like fat. Sorry, my my dog is like squeaking a toy. Flocculent is basically fleecy. But isn't it such a good word? Yeah. 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 Um, oh, I could, that's so cute. I know. That's so cute. Those are all wonderful words. Thank you for teaching them to me. Thank you for entertaining me. But that is, that's the joy. You know, her vocabulary is so charming. Like, I don't have I'm to... I'm so charmed by spondulo. I know. I was just about to say, I don't, I don't have to know what it is to love it and feel like... Okay, can I read the... I'm going to read one last thing and I'm done. Yeah. So her sister, I don't think this is a spoiler. Her sister is a tramp and she gets pregnant. And the family finds out. Oh, a tramp, like a slutty tramp. Yeah, or yeah not a not a hobo. <laughs> a tramp, like a slut. That's generally, that's what I called homeless people as a child. Okay. okay. Um, There's a sign near my house that said, beware ramps, and someone always drew a T. That's cute. That's funny. Um, okay. Your father went towards her to hit her, but the doctor pulled him back and said to keep in mind her condition, perfidious though it was. Is it I pronounce, did I mispronounce it perfidious? No, I think that's right. Your mother said she was a fully fledged streetwalker. <laughs> <laughs> your father. <laughs> 
Your father asked what pack of lies she would like to unleash before he polished her off. She turned <laughs> She turned to the doctor and said, could she have a word with him in private? Your father said all the private shit was over and that it was now in the public domain. Oh my goodness. It's just incredible. It's so good. Give her the Nobel. God damn it. She doesn't have that much longer with us. She's a fully fledged streetwalker. <laughs> It's so good because fledged means that you can fly, right? A fully fledged bird has enough feathers to fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A fully fledged streetwalker. All the private shit was over. It was now in the public now domain. Now it's in the public domain. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good way to refer to gossip. It's especially it's so brilliant. like sex related. It's so genius. It's out of copyright now, love. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, that's my pick. She's really good. Gorgeous recommendation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for entertaining me. Um, and shall we get to our guest? So joining us today, we have Eva Dixit. She's an editor and writer at the New York Times Magazine. She wrote an incredible piece on Sean Paul. It was your first feature, right? First full-length magazine feature in print or anywhere, so... That's so auspicious. Truly, it, it, de it definitely felt that way. So His friends like taking the piss out of you. So good. It, that went on for the entire time. That I was there, so. so what book would you like to share with us? So the book that I would like to talk about that based on uh, the brief that you guys gave me is The Shipping News by Annie Prue. Uh, you can see my extremely yellowed, battered, folded, um, cried on, sneezed on copy over here. Is that hardback? It is. So you carry it around, though? So I brought this all the way over from India, where I purchased it at the Jaipur Literature Festival in 2012, where Annie Pru, I think, was a guest. Not because I attended her talk or I listened to her or was particularly impressed by her. It was only because I was hovering around the makeshift book stall that they have over there. And this girl that I knew, I will not name her, but I did not like her. I, I you know, the only person, the only kind, the only thing that incites uh, insecurity in me is people who have more cosmopolitan uh, reading lives uh, because their parents encouraged them to read because that's not something I had. And I remember just her very excitedly being like, oh my God, they have Annie Prue over here and they have collections of New Yorker stories just purely out of spite. And because I was seven <laughs> inches taller than her, I just reached out and I grabbed the last two copies of it left. So I got this and I got the New Yorker humor collection. I think it was called Fierce Pajamas. I did not know who Annie Prue was at the time. I most definitely did not know what the New Yorker was at the time. So it's a pure act of interventionist revenge, and on the spot, like the spontaneity and the confidence of that p purchase is like really to be commended. I brought it all the way with me from India. Carried it around everywhere that I went um, out of, I don't know why. I just thought that I was like, yeah, this is one of those books that I think I will read when I am in America. I never actually got around to reading it till February of 2022 when I couldn't sleep for a whole night. So I was reduced to doing very out of character things like rearranging my bookshelf. And then I just found it and I was like, what is, who 
is this. By then, of course, I knew thankfully who Anipu was. My education had sort of, you know, my mind had been expanded a little bit. And just sitting cross-legged, surrounded by dirt, cats, just books scattered around me. And I just remember just like flipping it open just out of curiosity and being like, where is this from? When did I get this? I have read it several times over since then. And I have a very unhealthy obsession with this book which sort of does not take into account you know it won the Pulitzer which I found out later on you know it's considered this very weighty um, important book of literature that is not how I saw it I thought of it it was I was very um, I was perhaps in a very sentimental phase of mine mind at the time and I think that's the sort of relationship where I have with this book where I am very sentimentally attached to it and I read it all over and over again whenever I am feeling even slightly hesitant about my place in the world. So are you somebody who, do you have a lot of books in your house and a lot of them be, are unread? I do. And they're all very, I'm not one of those people who, I'm not organized in any way. I take complete ownership and even a little bit of pride in that. My books are not organized. They are, um, you know, this bookshelf, I, I picked it up from the street when I was living in Harlem um, and I brought it in and I just shove things in there whenever I see space. If I if I have to keep it upright in order to just get it in there, I will, I will shove it in there like that. So I actually have no coherent idea of how many books I own what's in there how many of them have I read how many of them did I buy steal pick up from the free books table at any of the publications I was working at I just love I think that's so I love that trajectory you know where you acquire a book and then for some reason you do carry it with you forever like I've had books where I've moved with so many times and I'm like what is it in me that is not ready to get rid of this book I still have not read there's going to be a moment. This is my most sort of woo-woo hippie belief that I think <laughs> that like everything has its time. If you don't read it right now, I don't feel the anxiety that like or guilt about like, oh, I bought it and now I'm not going to read it. No, I'll read it when the time comes. Well, I always think of it like I'm saving it. Like I'm saving Ferrante. Like I read a bit, you know, I read the like, you know, the main one about the, the one with the bath. <laughs> bath shoes. Shouting. Daddy shouting. But Joe, you sound like, you sorry. don't sound like you're saving it like it's a treat. You sound like you're no, like... No, I am. I'm like, sorry, <laughs> uh, what I just described was what I feel to be neutrally describing a work of fiction. No, I, but I've been like, well, this is obviously not going to be my big one, you know? No one needs like what I have to say. But that's like, I mean, Eva, like you were saying like this book won the Pulitzer Prize, but it's for you to be reading it at a time when it's kind of fallen out of the public consciousness. She is a prolific writer whose life is made up of the act of writing and she continues to churn out books with a prolificness that is both inspiring and alarming. She's 87 now. She has gone on to write many books, fiction, nonfiction, novels, short stories since then. This one had its moment. This was her second novel and she has said many times over that the popularity of this one continues to baffle her. But she's like, I, I don't know why this is the one that popped. This is what I, I like to think of as a noisy novel. Before I read this novel, my taste used to skew towards what I like to call thinky novels, where it was a lot about, you know, the internal life of a person and, you know, or, or even families. But majority of the action was always internal. And there was a, a lot of um, the chaos was always contained inwards. 
this i think marked a turning point both in terms of hype how i processed the world outside of me because there was there was a lot of that it's very thinky <laughs> but at the same time there was it was so frenetic it was filled with so much happening in every single sentence in every single page that i don't think i had read anything of that up until then in a way that really shook me and i was like wait you're allowed to do this when you're writing fiction in america land of the mfa if you just even just look at the first page there is like here is an account of a few years in the life of coil born in brooklyn and raised in a shuffle of dreary upstate towns so the way she just describes this man is stumbled through his 20s and into his 30s learning to separate his feelings from his life and counting on nothing well <laughs> well 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 I am against relatability as a principle in every form but I also acknowledge its power and when it happens when the lightning of relatability hits you right in the forehead so this is my equivalent of that line which comes a little bit later from my my I haven't read the whole thing I've gotten like a quarter of the way in which is kind of cheating because I thought I wouldn't like read but I couldn't really resist okay so this is a few pages later when he's gotten a job at a local newspaper he says the uh well prue writes thrilled at the sight of his byline irregular hours encouraged him to imagine that he was master of his own time home after midnight from a debate on the wording of a minor municipal bylaw on bottle recycling he felt he was a pin in the hinge of power so the common places of life as newspaper headlines man walks across parking lot at moderate pace women talk of rain phone rings in empty room i yeah i felt I felt like skewered. Stabbed gently skewered and that. you enjoyed it so much that you were like yes, more of that. Well, it's the authority, right? Is like when someone tells you something about yourself so clearly, you're like it doesn't actually matter how I feel about this. I've got to keep listening to you. I need to know exactly what happens to this man at 36, bereft, brimming with grief and thwarted love. He went away to Newfoundland, a place he had never been nor thought to go. This is all that's on the first page, and the way it just consumed my entire being in that moment. I, not to exaggerate, but I truly, I had the sort of reaction where I, I thought I was, I was like, I need to stop whatever it is that I am doing, and I need to know what happens next. I am. I I fear it will be disastrous and it's nothing ha- happy can nothing good can happen to a person who has been introduced to me this way and I feel both a sense of just nauseous dread rising up in me and I want to experience more of it. He is he's a very rotund and a very massive and large man and then she goes into great detail to describe the the kind of shame that he feels at his own body and the kind of alienation that he feels inhabiting a body like that which you know contributes a lot to the kind of person that he is and i think the massiveness of of him, who he is physically also sets off the timidity and the cringing quality of his personality which is almost repellent to a point where you just want to be like get your shit together stand up what is wrong with you like straighten your back i remember listening to an interview of hers from 93 on i think um, terry gross where she said that no he's a fat man he's a big man he moves through this world with the ungainliness of this large body that he inhabits 
and he has no comfort with. So so when you were reading and you got so immersed, was this like a single sitting read? It's too big for that, right? Sitting read. It definitely was not a single sitting read because I am a very fast reader, but I would keep turning pages back to go back and reread parts of it because one thing about this book is every time I read it, I discover something that I had not noticed before and it just sort of makes like a little firework go off in my brain. Like my copy is all like you can see. I underline and I fold and I treat my books very bad. I, I want them to look as if they have been. I would also do this thing, but if I didn't have a pen or a pencil on my hand, I would just fold the corner of the page and I wouldn't. It's like a little exercise that I would set for myself where I would, I would not underline it. And then I would force myself to come back later and be like, Let's see if you can find what it is that you actually wanted to underline. I've done the same thing as a trick on myself all my life. <laughs> can I recreate the feeling of what I felt when I read that sentence for the first time? Will I be able to identify it? Because I read the book, I think, over, I think, a week or 10 days. I took my time with it. I am not a, I'm not a slow reader. I like to charge through books like a freight train. Not this one. I took my time. I, I made it a whole experience for myself. So... Oh, you drew it out into a ritual for yourself. I really did. I really and truly did. I'm I'm not this person normally, but for reasons I have like scrawled a bunch of LOLs in corner. <laughs> oh my God, Eva, one day, what if this is the only thing that survives the volcano engulfing New York City and everyone be like, <laughs> Eva Dixit was a happy-go-lucky <laughs> girl who loved everything she read. <laughs> they, they will get a very mistaken impression of me from this book. Did, were you trying to keep it kind of private while you were reading it? Or did you, were you talking to other people? This is perhaps a bad habit of mine. I don't talk to people about books. This is, I don't like talking to other people about books. To me, my reading is such an immensely private activity that some, I like the way I talk about them, you know, on the internet sometimes. I, I think of that as me making a, public note to myself that I will later on revisit and, and you know, as a, as a record of what I was thinking or feeling at the time. It's not to sort of um, engage in conversation. It's never an invitation to engage in conversation with me about reading. <laughs> not even this. So, not even not this. an invitation. This is the only time I have made an exception. It was, um, but in fact, sometimes I get really angry messages from people because, you know, um, if I ever post like a screenshot of something that I'm reading on my Instagram stories, of course, the modern day uh, uh, diary format of everyone between the ages of 20 and 40. Um, so and then people are like, oh, my God, you are such a gatekeeper. Where is this from? Where is this from? Where is this from? And I take a very perverse joy in not saying where is that from. And then, of course, you know, it transforms into the usual, oh, my God, you are such a gatekeeper. Okay, and take a screenshot. Look it up. Exactly. No, I feel the same way. People always, they'll be like, what's this from? from. There's a sudden entitlement in being like, where is this from? I will not tell you. I promise you can find it out for yourself. Type out one line. If one you line. want to know, of course, this is just me and my absurd sen sense of grandiosity. We I think we fully agree. Okay, I have a question, which is, can you give us, like, strokes of the plot without, like, ruining it? And does it, is it the kind of book that can be ruined? It's not the kind of book that can be ruined unless you're really, really deep into it. And, uh, in fact, on the same Terry Gross interview with... Um, 
Annie Pooh, she um, reads out the very last line of the book, like a spoiler, but it's not really a spoiler. But and then Annie Pooh says that I actually wrote the ending before I wrote anything else in the book. The plot of the book is that there is this rather ugly, ungainly man called Coil who has been beset by misfortune from the moment he seemed to have appeared on on this earth. The first few pages do a very, very, very intense job of sort of just making you relive the shame that he went through. And uh, can I read out just like one small part? Please. Coil feared water, could not swim. Again and again, the father had broken his clenched grip and thrown him into pools, brooks, lakes, and surf. Coyle knew the flavor of brack and waterweed. From this youngest son's failure to dog paddle, the father saw other failures multiply like an explosion of virulent cells. Failure to speak clearly. Failure to sit up straight. Failure to get up in the morning. Failure in attitude, failure in ambition, failure in ability, indeed, in everything, his own failure. That to me is just, it was such an incredible paragraph just because of the way that it was written, because she's talking about the father projecting his own sense of failure onto his child, whom he's been throwing into water bodies so that he would learn to swim. And... Just on the previous page, we were introduced to Coyle as a 36-year-old man, and immediately we switched to, um, you know, him being talked about as an infant being thrown into water. And she's talking about the father's sense of shame, but it actually is, is this very just scathing and piercing insight into who Coyle is as a person, is that this is who he is. The sense of failure and shame are just the building blocks of who he is as a person. He's 36 years old, and the only thing he has ever known is shame and failure. And it comes from the father, of course, like all things, all bad things do. <laughs> a great damp loaf of a body. Just just the, the language in this book, I think, rewired my brain in a fundamental way, and I can never go back to who I was before I read it. But the plot. Unhappy man you know, worthless in life, externally, internally defined by shame. His parents die by drinking barbiturates. And the mm -hmm. only sort of thing that seems to have gone in his favor is that one of these local characters in the upstate New York towns that he lives has taken um, pity on him and helped him get a job as a newspaper man. He does not know anything about the business of newspapering. He's not a writer. He has no ambitions to be either. It just seems to this just seems to be a bygone era where you could just enter the newspaper business if you didn't know what else to do because the bar to entry was so low. Imagine that. <laughs> One good thing happens in his life, which is that he falls in love with a woman called Petal Bear, who, how does she, how does I describe her? Um, As a hot mouth warms a cold spoon, Petal warmed coil. Uh, he stumbled away to painful love, his heart scarred forever by tattoo needles pricking the name of Petal Bear. It's a beautiful thing to happen to anyone. Not really, because it turns out to be one of the worst things to happen to him. There was one month of fiery happiness and then six kinked years of suffering because his wife turns out to be a sex addict of some sort who has been described as... Petal Bear was cross-hatched with longings, but not after they were married for coil. Desire reversed to detestation like a rubber glove turned inside out. 
in another time, another sex, she would have been a Genghis Khan. When she needed burning cities and the stumbling babble of captives, she had only the petty triumphs of sexual encounter. By <laughs> day, she sold burglar alarms at Northern Security. At night, she became a woman who could not be held back from strangers' rooms, who would have sexual conjunction either in stinking restrooms or mop cupboards. She went anywhere with unknown men, flew to nightclubs in distant cities, made a pornographic video while wearing a mask cut from a potato chip bag. <laughs> I, my heart is kind of getting tattooed with her name as well, I'm afraid to say. If the goal was to make us hate her, that's not happening. Just by herself, she would have been an absolutely fantastic character, even in all of her, you know, evilness. So, um, but when paired with a absolute sodden mushroom of her man like Coil, that is not a happy union in any way. I mean, first of all, I don't think this man is destined to find happiness in any way or form. But just this one in particular has, this situation in particular has just compounded his suffering. He already is a person who feels a lot and by default, most of those feelings are that of suffering. Now, he is consumed with his entirely undefinable, unreasonable love for this woman who hates him, who hates his existence, who saw the size of his appendage and married him, and that was the last time she was happy with him. There are so many parts in the book where it is never explained to us what exactly was it that he saw in her, what kindness did she do to him. It's never explained. We just know that he imprinted on her and he gave his everything. In his mind, he made her the center of his world. And there was, she's a cruel person. She's a cruel person and she goes on to inflict these very horrifying cruelties upon this. She bears him two children. She hates the children. She hates him. Later on, she sells the children to a child pornographer that she's also having sex with. Oh, ma. We were rooting for you. <laughs> Just what a... What an incredible, like, left plot twist, left field to come out of nowhere, where where it's like, these are things you're not supposed to say out loud. And it's also just one very small blip in a series of things that, that happens in a lesser novel, in the hands of, I think, a um, lesser novelist. This would have been a whole milestone by itself. It's not. It's like one and done, forgotten. And then she dies in a car crash after that. So... That is the big motivation for uh, the big action that takes place is that Coyle's very robust, very no-nonsense aunt says, let's go back to Newfoundland where our ancestors are from. There is a house waiting for us over there. Your ancestors' house is still over there. Um, His parents are dead. His wife is also dead. And the thing is, he's actually mourning his wife. That's what one of the parts which just sort of clawed at my insights was that at no point in the book are we shown as him hating her. He simply, the way this man is wired, the way his sense of self is built, he cannot bring himself to hate the person who has been so undefinably cruel to him. Even when, you know, even when he admits and he finds the language to say that, no, he was bad, actually. The way Annie... Annie, my close personal friend, Annie, mm-hmm. 
build this world that is both so alien and so alive at the same time, which is, of course, what a good novelist is supposed to do. But the way she just does it, it's Newfoundland. It's a fishing uh, area. This place where you have such a firm sense of the people who inhabit it, but also the larger environment over there. And that's where, of course, where the novel, you know, has all of these important themes coming in and all of that, which, of course, I only discovered later on, because the first few times that I read it, I was only invested in in what the people are doing and what what's occurring over there. But it's this world that speaks its own language, has its own customs and rituals, and it is about, and this, I think, ultimately, the very many times that I have read the novel, and I think why I have this attachment to it is because both in terms of Coyle's journey and both in terms of the way that world of Newfoundland, the town that he goes and settles in, which is called Killiclaw. It's again, it's so, the words are so musical in it. It is, uh, it is about, I think, the act of making a life and the work that it entails and making a life without the assurance of happiness as a goal, which I thought was such a huge departure from a, from the way a lot of American writing is structured, where, like, you know, you're always rewarded. There is always a reward at the end. You're always... Uh, um, there's always something good waiting for you, or at least the promise of it is, is waiting for you. And for every one good thing that happens to this man, five bad things then continue to happen to him. And I enjoyed fuck out of that because I was my mind was just going around, I was like wait are you allowed to do that you can do that many shitty things to your protagonist and not have him like, like give this man one win no they don't come for a very long time so there's a sense of his sense of self developing uh sort of like that you're not privy to and it's and what I remember from that first few pages right so you're thrown into what again kind of added to my confusion what felt like quite rom-commy language because it's in like a a newsroom and there's like patter you know and like everything's happening there's so much happening there's this whole new world in a traditional setup in the hollywood version of this you know they're like these plucky little uh families sets off to this icy fishing village where they're going to build a new house no they're wow this is actually that's kind of an interesting point because you know those rom-coms which are really fucking dark, like um, the one about the bookshop? Oh, but You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail. Yes, You've Got Mail is like... And also actually Sleepless in Seattle, right? Like he's a widower. It's quite... I don't think it's exactly rare, actually, that in like a Nora Ephron-esque rom-com that you, first you get like, right, like a lot of activity and tons of dialogue and like this, this protagonist with like the fatal flaw who's everyone's written off, who then will like seek redemption. That, that is not what happens. And I kept waiting for that to happen. I kept waiting the whole time to see um, where I thought, okay, finally something has to go right in this guy's direction, you know. Um, but for a really long time, it doesn't. So I've, I'm so excited to read Brokeback Mountain, which is on its way to me, which she also wrote. This, I had no idea this was her style. Like I said, in my head, she's some type of like, spare maybe like overly serious no no there has been there have been two writers that i've had this revelation with where i made the exact same mistake of thinking that like oh they're very you know they're too highbrow for me the first one was this one where i'm like and then just got sucked into it and this is her style she writes it like she invents 
language of her own that just sort of leaps out of the page and just smacks you in the face with it, which is what I enjoy in a very heathen manner. It's the thing that I most like consuming. Everything that I have, you know, read, written by her has that same quality where, it, and what's so funny is that I read interviews with her where, um, you know, where she has been asked where like, what writers do you look for, for inspiration or, you know, who are your influence? And she says, no one. <laughs> she says, no one. I mean, I read a lot and I read only for pleasure. She's like, what a fucking flex. And again, not only am I obsessed with the book, I'm also just obsessed with the person that she is. That's going to require a whole other hour of recording. But genuinely, just like, she um, was, she, she wrote her first novel when she was 56. This was her second novel. Um, she dropped out of college at 20 to get married, went back at 40 to get her undergraduate degree, started a PhD, never finished it, married three times, continues to be single till today, has zigzagged across all of North America, lived in Vermont, lived in Seattle, lived in Newfoundland, is a very outdoorsy person, and just just an incredible personality. And she, whenever, you know, you, you have the typical, like, interview question of what advice would you give to young writers today? She's like, well, try to live a little before you start writing. Which, but she's like, well, I, she's like, I had no interest in being a writer. Fiction, absolutely the fuck not. I never thought of myself as a writer. I never, um, you know, conceived of my life that way. She said it began as a way of making a living because I was living in rural Vermont. And at the time I used to write these stories, like how to gardening manuals that would then appear in, she named this magazine uh, called Gray's Outdoor Journal. She said, you know, it was very beautifully designed and you would get all of these very outdoorsy um, stories written by men. And I changed my name. In, so her first name is actually Edna. Edna Annie. She shortened it to E. Annie Prue, uh, just to sort of keep a little bit of ambiguity around her name. And then she just ended up dropping the E altogether because she said, you know, I just did not want the men to be getting competitive because I was the only woman writing for this very outdoorsy magazine. So she used to write all of these uh, adventure outdoorsy stories. Uh, and she did that for years. She was what we would call the equivalent of a service journalist for years before I think uh, one of her editors sat her down and was like, Oh, you've written a few short stories. Just just let me add into your contract that you might want to write a novel. So, I mean, she's like, me? Write a novel? Ha, 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 ha. That's so funny. And then she just went ahead and she wrote her first novel, which is called Postcards, and which got a lot of good reviews, was not a blockbuster like this one was. But at the time, she said that, you know, people came up to me and said, it's so dark. This book is so dark and so sad can't you write a book with a happy ending? And she said, oh, you want a happy ending? Cool, I'll give you a happy ending. And then she wrote the shipping news for that. Does it have a happy ending? So this, very, very interesting um, question and very interesting point in this conversation because I personally don't think it, think it has a happy ending. And I think that she, the way the book ends, I think it has all the makings of a happy ending. So I think it's a very interesting slate of hand that's been done to a writer. You can where it's completely open-ended. You can choose to see it as a happy ending if that's your definition of happiness. And I did not see it as a happy ending. And she said this is Coyle's happy ending because to Coyle, the only, his definition of happiness is the absence of pain. That's it. Mm. 
So the last line in the book, which again, again, I'm going to read it out for you. And it may be that love sometimes occurs without pain or misery. That is the last line of the book. So for Coyle, the only definition of happiness is the absence of misery. That is not a happy ending in any way or form. And then the interviewer asks her, Agros asks her, where she's like, oh, uh, is that, do you relate to that? Do you, uh, you know, do you find any sort of personal resonance in that? And she's like, that? No, not at all. And then she says, I've never been unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> that you've described her so well, but I just feel like, oh, of course she would say that. Like, it makes perfect sense. She enjoys, I can see like the slight mean-spiritedness in her writing where she enjoys toying with the reader so much mm. that of course she has never been unhappy. Of course she would describe herself as that. And of course she would put me through everything that she has put me through just by virtue of being a dormant spectator to Coyle's life. So, And then she's like, it wasn't even that deep. You idiot. Like, this book of all of the books I've written? That, that one? Okay, sure. And I'm like, I need, I need answers. I think it's ironic. I don't think it's a happy ending. The good things that have happened seem to be all very external. There is one part, though, which is very touching, where he's just sort of looking at himself. He almost drowns at one point. So there's, you know, his body, his physical appearance, and how he inhabits the world in that body of his plays a very, very strong role in it. And there is this one part towards the very end where he um, he's just drowned. He's just been resuscitated and brought back to uh, life. Um, and he looks at his naked self, steam rising from his flesh in the cooler. And he sees that he is immense. That's the word she uses. Saw he was immense. Just that short sentence, four words, they did such a... They did a lot for me in terms of feeling a little bit of faith in him as a character that like that's not how he was described in the beginning where for all his physical massiveness the sense of smallness that pervades his existence was always the overwhelming you know character it always just followed him everywhere he went and he says like he has a bull neck great jaw and heavy cheek slabs stubbled with like coppery bristles he's like full shoulders and powerful arms and he's like hairy hands like a werewolf and uh, he's like it, and there's this one part where he says it's more the effect of strength than obesity for the first time he feels a certain amount of of faith in his own body which was very moving and he says you know middle age is still far ahead because he's still only 36 this man is 36 throughout the book he's like but it was harder to count his errors now, perhaps because they had compounded beyond counting and had just blurred into his general condition. I haven't read Brokeback Mountain, but that's a novel that puts its main characters into active torment of the of the insoluble variety. Um, does that have that same... Although the, the thing that makes Brokeback Mountain the movie so depressing is that it's so conceivable, right? Like the drama is so high, but it's like shit. That is, that's that's the torment of everyday life. I think that's one of those um, moments where uh, the film by itself has completely hijacked the source of where it's mm -hmm. become more about like the tormented longing that they have for one another, whereas in the actual book it is 
you don't sense the you do sense the longing um as but there is also a very pervasive sense of the fear that they have in, mm. i think that that to me was the big difference where 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 in this book you definitely sense like the longing and the desperation but it's a lot less tinged with like that sort of overwhelming fear for your life the tragedy of it all the tragedy is not the romance the tragedy is not in their suppressed love for one another it is the tragedy is in the extreme homophobia that surrounds the rural um confines that they live in that they have absolutely no hope of ever envisioning a future together so i love male pain i don't it's just fascinating you know it's like how i love the pain of elderly women in their writing it's like oh so unknowable so delicious delicious the, again <laughs> this is another annie pru um thing where someone asked her uh once that like you in a lot of your characters tend to be men uh not you know women which you tend to keep in the shadows and she says yeah i just find them more interesting she says that you know i she's like i always wanted brothers i always just saw the way men inhabit the world as more interesting and it's just you know she's like you always see the way she's like you know my father and all of the men around me um were always going outside and just like walking through the world in this very forceful manner and mm. just she's like i like situating what what their experience of the world would have been like from that perspective so and then it just sort of kind of incredible to me not to do such like basic um uh you know uh prurient pleasure in something mm-hmm. um, but you know she just she takes men and she just puts them to misery over and over again it's sort of fun to watch so well thank you for sharing making an exception to your literally i feel like i've never received such a powerful book recommendation like not like partly in its enthusiasm but also because of its rarity you know scarcity you... does make things more valuable i mean you knew immediately <laughs> and as you said like you have read a lot of books if i have to talk about a book publicly um if if i am going to be doing this then it has to be it has to be this book there is simply no other i feel like i uh, have compartmentalized my life into different parts because i have lived so many versions of them and the version that i was living when i read this book i think it was both very fortuitous in terms of timing and the kind of impression that it made on me that i genuinely do think that i drew a lot of the ways in which i inhabit the world now from this book which of course is a very deeply just sort of overarching thing to say but it's like how you eat food and it turns into your cells right right thank you for joining us for this episode of reading writers if you have any questions requests or thoughts about what we're reading you can share them with us at readingwriterspod@gmail.com at 